This is Crime Beat, brought to you by Ad Taxi. Take your digital advertising to a higher level. With metrics that matter, Ad Taxi can boost your campaign performance, increase efficiency, and optimize your results. To learn more about our customized solutions, visit adtaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat, a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. When you play it back, it almost sounds like a job interview. A twisted job interview, but still a job interview. I'm in a restaurant having lunch with one of the guys who pulled off the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States. I had a couple jobs. What'd you do? Uh, mostly landscaping. Worked at a gas station on and off. If I would have met you at that time, what were you going to be when you grew up? I really didn't know. I was undecided. Being undecided, naturally, he switched to a life of crime. He joined a crew, and they were pretty good. Well, we started doing supermarkets first, and the supermarkets were too easy. Back in those days, businesses would collect their profits, wrap the cash up with all the proper accounting forms, and drop them into a slot at the bank after hours. The money would sit in the bank's night drop until the next morning, and stealing that cash didn't prove to be much of a challenge. We tried the night drops first, and then they were a snap. They were easy too? Yeah, easier than than the supermarkets. Easy to beat? Very easy. The crew kept getting better and better at their craft. You got to know what the hell you're doing before you do it. Now, thinking about an alarm system is a lot more than doing doing the alarm system. Because when you go somewhere, you don't want nothing to happen when you're inside. You guys were good. Nobody no better. Nobody no better anywhere. Nobody was doing what we were doing. Nobody. When you're that good, you've got to take your show on the road. I'm thinking by this time. They're rolling in the dough. They're living the life, partying. And like I found out so many times when I talked to Harry Barber, I was wrong. There was Texas, there was Oklahoma, there was Florida was our hangout. When the snow was in back east, we had to Florida and stay down there all winter. Was that a good, fun lifestyle for you? It was different. I think you enjoyed yourself. You know what? This was a business. People don't understand. Everybody thinks you're a weekend warrior. Well, weekend warriors get killed. So, you know, we, we did this seven days a week. We studied the alarm systems. We studied all these companies that had alarms. And we got to the point where there was not one out there we could not defeat. No one. No one. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. 
In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. This podcast is going to cover the half-century history of the top U.S. bank burglary of all time. From the moment it was just a twinkle in the eye of a master thief to the long weekend in March of 1972 when the crew went after Nixon's money to the investigation in which only one of the thieves got away to the night this story will appear on the big screen as a Hollywood movie. When you see the movie and you start asking yourself, did that really happen? This podcast will answer your questions. This is episode one of Stealing Nixon's Millions, The Target. The first weird thing, among so many weird things on that day, was that the vault door wouldn't open. The bank manager had the right numbers of the combination, and the door wouldn't budge. What the hell? Yes, the door was designed to keep people out, but not people with the combination. He tried again, and again the vault stayed locked. It was Monday, March 27, 1972. A representative from the company that designed the vault door drove to the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel, a tiny beachfront community that wasn't yet a city in South Orange County. He couldn't figure it out either. The door seemed to be jammed from the inside. A little context. The United California Bank had two sources of money. One was the new, crisp dollar bills, the operating money. That's 3% of the total money the bank has taken in. When you walked up to a teller and withdrew money from the bank, that's the operating money. It came from a sophisticated safe that's kept in the vault. The second source of money was the safe deposit boxes. No records were kept for those. If you had valuables, you didn't want to keep at home, and you wanted to put them in a secure place, and you didn't want anybody to know about it, you put them in a bank's safe deposit box. In this case, the target was that second source of money, the money in the safe deposit boxes. The vault where both sources was kept had all of the -the state-of-the-art safeguards, the steel door, the combination lock, and the reinforced concrete walls. The guy from the door company figured out something was wrong, so he climbed onto the roof to check the alarm. That's when he saw what you don't want to see when you're in charge of keeping a bank vault free from intrusion. There was a gaping hole in the roof. When law enforcement representatives finally arrived at the United California Bank that afternoon, here's what they saw in the breached vault. Hundreds of safe deposit boxes had been smashed open. The floor of the vault was full of debris from people's lives. Birth certificates, passports, divorce decrees, baseball cards, coins, urns filled with human remains, jewelry, and cash. Thousands of dollars in cash. Who breaks into a bank and leaves cash lying on the floor? When you think about it, bank robbery is a stupid crime. The risk is too high, the reward is too low. Quick, name a bank robber. Did you say Jesse James? Jesse James was gunned down by a member of his own gang in 1882 when Jesse was 34 years old. Did you say John Dillinger? John Dillinger was gunned down by the feds outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago in 1934 when Dillinger was 31. 
Did you say Bonnie and Clyde? Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were gunned down by a posse of police officers in Louisiana in 1934. Bonnie was 23, Clyde was 25. You may detect a pattern here. And then there's Willie Sutton. Willie Sutton may be the most recognizable bank robber in history because of something he didn't say. Reporter Mitch Onstad of the New York Herald said he asked Willie Sutton why he robbed banks. Onstad wrote that Willie gave the all-time answer, because that's where the money is. Apparently, Onstad was the creative one in that interview scenario. It's a quote that evolved into Sutton's Law, which is used to teach medical students to accept the most likely diagnosis rather than search for endless possibilities, and by accountants who give the most attention to the endeavors that cost the most, and by scientists who consider the most obvious possibility first. Willie Sutton denied he ever said it, and I believe him. So does the fact-checking website Snopes.com. Snopes called the where the money is quote, malarkey. Willie Sutton was a bank robber, and you know what George Clooney said about bank robbers. Remember that movie Out of Sight, where Clooney played bank robber Jack Foley? Foley said, most bank robbers are fucking morons. Willie Sutton was successful only because he carried a pistol or a Thompson submachine gun. Even then, he wasn't that successful. He kept getting arrested. He broke out of jail three times. He was caught for the last time on a subway train by an amateur sleuth named Arnold Schuster. Willie Sutton lived to be 79. He spent more than half his adult life in jail. His wife divorced him while he was in jail. His daughter was born while he was in jail. He died of emphysema in 1980. What Willie Sutton did say was this. I was more alive when I was inside a bank robbing it than at any other time in my life. In other words, he enjoyed himself immensely when he was pointing his Thompson submachine gun at a bunch of traumatized people in a bank. When you think about it, that is one crappy life. Frank Calley worked the bank robbery detail in Los Angeles and Orange County for the FBI for 25 years in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Calley was the real deal. In the 1970s, he worked on the Falcon and the Snowman case, where Christopher Boyce sold U.S. secrets to the Soviet Union. That, however, wasn't the best case he ever worked on. The best case he ever worked on happened at a bank. Listen to what Callie says about most bank robbers he encountered. The typical robbery at that time probably was a, a, a no-gun job. The typical case was a junkie walking in with a note, give me your money, I have a gun, sometimes simulating a gun, sometimes showing a real gun, rarely really using the gun in the robbery. But that was the typical. They would take, the average take was about $1,300, and of that $1,300, $1,500 went into his arm, so, uh, or up his nose. So that's what we had at the time. They were mostly all junkies. Bank robbery is a crime of desperation. Where is the art in that? When you're talking to people after you listen to this podcast and they ask you, what's it about? Do me a favor. Please do not say it's about a bank robbery. Bank robbery is U.S. Code 18-2113, subsection A. Stealing something by force, violence, or intimidation. 
bank burglary is U.S. Code 2113, subsection B, taking something with the intent to steal or purloin. Bank burglars purloin things. If you say this podcast is about a bank robbery, just don't. This podcast is about a bank burglary, baby. Burglary attracts the geniuses. Ladies and gentlemen, I am about to introduce you to the greatest bank burglar of all time. How successful was he? The FBI agents I talked to only have estimates about how many banks, supermarkets, or jewelry stores he and his crew knocked over. The FBI can only guess how much money they stole. His name is Emil Dinzio. And unless you're an FBI agent, you probably haven't heard of him because he doesn't talk. I have tried to interview him several times. He won't budge. He sent me an angry letter once accusing me of stealing his intellectual property. In other words, his methods of breaking into banks. I interviewed his daughter, Melissa, once, and Emil told her to stop talking. She did, however, give an interview in October of 2014 to WOCA Radio in Ocala, Florida. That's 96.3 FM and 1370 on your AM dial. Do not call Melissa Dinzio's dad a bank robber. There is a distinction between a robber and a burglar. Any idiot can walk into an open bank with a gun and say to the teller, give me all your money. That's a robbery. A burglary is way more sophisticated, at least the way my father did it. So you have to be pretty darn smart. In fact, the FBI has labeled him a genius. The only thing that matches his genius about him is his compassion. Emil Dinzio was so good at what he did, people had to use very colorful language to describe him. He probably had more balls than 20 people put together. That was Harry Barber, Emil's nephew. He was the getaway driver in Dinzio's crew. He's the guy I was interviewing in a Diamond Bar Chili's in the opening of this podcast, in case you were wondering about the background noise. And if you're scoring at home... He's saying his uncle had more than 40 balls. Metaphorically, of course. For context, let's look at the list of the biggest heists in U.S. history. The Lufthansa heist at JFK Airport in 1978. Thieves strong-armed airport personnel and stole almost $6 million in cash and jewels. Have you seen the movie Goodfellas? This heist was at the heart of that movie. That was a robbery, not a bank. The great Brinks job, January 17, 1950. Eleven co-conspirators held Brinks workers hostage and escaped with $2.8 million. The Brinks job was made into a movie, too. 1978, Peter Falk, Peter Boyle, Paul Sorvino. It was directed by William Friedkin. That was a robbery, again, not a bank. In preparation for this podcast, just to get in the right frame of mind, I started binge-watching bank heist movies. For more than 25 hours, I listened to creatively masked gunmen and gunwomen yell, Get on the floor! And other emphatic dialogue like, I said, get on the floor! Is there such a word as gunwomen? Shouldn't there be? Have you ever noticed in bank heist movies, there's always an off-duty police officer who just happens to be in the teller line with a gun under his shirt as the heist is going down. I have learned you don't want to be that off-duty cop in a bank heist movie. It never ends well for them. 
I asked my boss, senior editor Todd Harmonson, to help me make a list of the best bank heist movies of all time. He's a movie nut too, so this was a fun exercise. We made a list of 12, and I'll count them down for you in this podcast, two at a time. You will not find Ocean's Eleven or Reservoir Dogs or The Sting on our list. Those were heist movies, but they had nothing to do with banks. Numbers 12 and 11 are two Los Angeles-based bank heist films, Point Break and Set It Off. You know what they have in common? The lead investigator in both films is the great John C. McGinley. He's a loudmouth, clean-shaven, compassionless prick in both movies, but in one of them, he has a change of heart. I'm not going to spoil it for you, more than I already have. Who would have figured that Los Angeles banks were under siege in the 1990s, first by a crew of psychotic surfers and later by a crew of down-on-their-luck janitorial workers? Point Break is cool because the surfers call themselves the ex-presidents and they wear masks of Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, Lyndon Johnson, and yes, our favorite, Richard Nixon during their heist. Nixon even gets to say, I am not a crook, as he's running out of the bank with an automatic weapon. Set It Off has a breakout performance by Queen Latifah as Cleopatra Sims. Its cool factor goes way up when you notice that Dr. Dre has a couple of lines and Bone Thugs and Harmony is on the soundtrack. Let's just say that several of the lead bank robbers don't make it out of either film alive. These robberies aren't very well planned. The only goal in both films is to make it out of the bank fast, a goal that falls apart when each robbery crew gets a little more greedy and takes a little more time to find money. If only these crews would have put some more thought into their crimes and stuck to the plans. Both movie heist crews should have considered burglary. Any halfwit with a gun can pull off a robbery, but to burgle, that is some next-level stuff. How do you beat the -the state-of-the-art alarm system? How do you get past the intricate combination of the vault door? How do you penetrate reinforced steel walls? How do you carry all that loot out of the bank? And how do you do it without being seen? There's one more thing about burglary that is especially important. How do you pull off the crime, then slip back into your normal life without being detected? In the case of the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel, what happened after the crime was even more interesting than the crime itself. Number one on the list of the biggest heists in the history of the United States is a burglary, as it should be. This particular burglary happened in Laguna Niguel, in the southern reaches of Orange County. It was a sleepy little bedroom community that had never had anything notable happen there until seven guys from Youngstown, Ohio, showed up there in the spring of 1972. This true story has all the elements of a box office smash. It's got a team of thieves with a really smart leader and a getaway driver that turns out unexpectedly to be the star of the drama. It's got the methodical FBI guys trying to figure it out, It has a villain who just happens to be the most powerful man in the world. It's got a love story and politics and millions of dollars and the 10 most wanted list and colossal mistakes by the genius crew where you'll be yelling at your listening device, what are you doing? And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Orange County Register, We'll keep City Hall honest, corporations accountable, and report on local sports, events, and issues in your community, accurately and objectively. And that's worth paying for. To subscribe, call 1-877-469-3000.
1-877-469-6133. That's 1-877-469-6133. The movie based on this story, by the way, is called Finding Steve McQueen. The title comes from something Harry Barber told me. When he was a young man, Harry had a Steve McQueen poster on his wall. I used to love Steve McQueen when I was young. He was my hero. Everything clicked for him. But I know he was a movie star, but just his way of living, I liked it. He had fast women, fast cars, and I was, I was into that. That's Harry. You'll get to know him well. The world premiere of Finding Steve McQueen was March 2nd at the Monte Carlo Film Festival in Monaco. I didn't go. I'm just a screenwriter. Screenwriters don't fly to Monaco. I started working on the Denzio Heist story in 2002, just after one of the greatest days of my life. In March of that year, my screenplay became a film, Showtime, with Robert De Niro, Eddie Murphy, William Shatner, and Rene Russo. I had visited the Showtime set, and that's an amazing thing to do. You see all these people running around trying to recreate the ideas that were once inside your head? I remember getting choked up seeing Robert De Niro acting in a scene I had written. The director, Tom Day, saw the tear in my eye and said, It's overwhelming, isn't it? I had lunch that day with William Shatner. He didn't know my name, so he called me author, and my life felt complete. The movie opened on March 15th at Grauman's Chinese Theater. My wife Nancy and I walked down the red carpet with all the photographers taking our picture and trying to figure out who in the hell we were. We liked that experience so much, we left the theater through a side exit and walked down the red carpet one more time. Ever since then, I've dreamed about having that experience again. And that dream is coming true this year. Just wait till you hear the 15-year story of how a newspaper article becomes a movie. In 2002, I had no idea the biggest heist in U.S. history had taken place just a few miles from my house. OC Register columnist Frank Mickadite told me about the case. I searched the Register's archives and found a couple of articles but the coverage of the case in 1972 didn't show the burglary was special in any way. An undisclosed amount of money had been taken from a tiny bank off Pacific Coast Highway. That's all it said. The details of the crime sounded juicy to me. The thieves had disabled the exterior alarm, cut through the roof, blown a hole in the bank vault with dynamite, and opened more than 400 safe deposit boxes. I think one fact caught my eye more than any other. These thieves broke into that bank three nights in a row, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was like a magic trick. How did they disappear and reappear like that? Something was different about this case. Why would you keep breaking into the same place, and why weren't they getting caught? As I kept searching, I saw more stories about arrests and the trials. Thirty years later, a couple of the thieves were in jail for other crimes. A couple of them had died and a couple were in the Witness Protection Program. One name stood out, Harry Barber. He was only 31 when the crime was committed. I thought it was funny. When I did a Google search of Harry Barber, I found that name had been used for the lead character in the 1998 movie Palmetto with Woody Harrelson. Harry Barber, 
Who names their kid Harry Barber? Isn't that a little like naming your kid Tree Lumberjack or Porky Butcher? I found an address for Harry Barber in Redondo Beach. When I drove out there, the homeowner told me Harry had once done work on her porch. He was a handyman. She had another address for him and a phone number. Bingo. I called immediately and left a message, but no one called me back. I drove about 50 miles to a trailer park in Montclair. I found his trailer and knocked on the door. I could hear a yappy dog inside. No one answered. What kind of criminal has a yappy dog? I left a note on the door, in it. I introduced myself and left my phone number. I wrote that since the crime had happened three decades ago, I thought he would be open to talking about it. I tucked the note into a screen door. A week passed, then two. It wasn't until three weeks later, Harry called me. He seemed pissed off. Harry always seems to be teetering on pissed off. Why did I want to talk to him? Was I with the FBI? Why the hell would I want to write a story about an old case like this? We talked for what seemed like a long time about how much he didn't want to talk. I could kind of tell he wanted to talk. I told him I'd buy him dinner, and he agreed to meet. Out of all the places in the world he could have picked, Harry chose Denny's off Pathfinder Road and the 57 Freeway in a city called Diamond Bar. Harry is a barrel-chested guy, big gap between his two front teeth. He looked like a guy who had never tucked in his shirt. My strategy was to play to his vanity. I started talking about the intricacies of the crime, how they broke into the same place three nights in a row without getting caught, how they beat the alarm systems. He looked at me and said, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, do you? I guess not, I said. He slammed his fist on the table. We were after Nixon. Nixon? President Richard Nixon? Watergate Richard Nixon? I am not a crook, Richard Nixon. In all the newspaper stories written about this case over the decades, no one had ever reported that the target of the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States was President Nixon. I remember thinking to myself, this is going to be good. So let's start with Nixon, the 37th president of the United States. At one time, Richard Milhouse Nixon was considered the shadiest president of all time. Like I said, at one time. Nixon, a Republican, had beaten Hubert Humphrey, a Democrat from Minnesota, in the 1968 election by about 500,000 votes, 43.4% to 42.7. George Wallace, the independent candidate from Alabama, got 13.5% of the vote. The Democrats won Texas, and the Republicans won California. Wallace won the South. Nixon breezed to victory in the Electoral College, winning 301 to 191. But Nixon had a problem. As he prolonged and lied about the Vietnam War, his popularity took a hit. Students were marching in the streets, trashing the Nixon name. Nixon was hell-bent on re-election in 1972. He established the Committee to Re-elect the President, Creep, and he filled that committee with shady operatives who turned out to be as creepy as their name implied. Two of Nixon's strategies are particularly relevant to this podcast. 
First, he wanted to amass a big war chest for his re-election campaign. In doing so, Nixon agreed to raise the price of milk supports and raise the profits for the Associated Milk Producers Incorporated. In return, the AMPI would contribute major moolah to his campaign. What you're about to hear is part of the White House tapes from March 21, 1971. I know it's tough to hear. Nixon said, Connolly, quote, knows them well and he's used to shaking them down and maybe he can shake them for a little more, end quote. Shaking people down, sports fans, is a crime. He's talking about Treasury Secretary John Connolly, who is, quote, used to, unquote, shaking down the dairy farmers. Connolly, if you remember from your history books, was the former Texas governor. He was shot in Dealey Plaza when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The scandal that ensued from the White House conversation about the dairy farmers was called the Milk Fund. You want to know what's funny about the Milk Fund scandal? It didn't become public until the Watergate tapes were released in 1974. The Laguna Niguel bank heist was in 1972. On the night I had dinner with Harry Barber in Denny's, he looked at me like I was an idiot when I had never heard of the Milk Fund. The Milk Fund, he said, was one of the reasons he and his buddies tried to knock over that bank in Laguna Niguel. They believed Nixon was hiding the Milk Fund money there. The second reason was Jimmy Hoffa. And in truth, Hoffa was probably the first reason. In the 1960s, Jimmy Hoffa was a household name. He ran the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the most powerful labor organization in America, until he was arrested on bribery charges. In 1967, Hoffa began serving a 13-year prison sentence. Nixon wanted the Teamsters' vote. So, the story goes, Hoffa's cronies sent a $3 million secret donation to Nixon's re-election campaign. In return, Nixon pardoned Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa walked out of prison on December 23rd 1971, and shortly after, Nixon got the Teamsters' endorsement, which was shocking at the time because the Teamsters, in their history, usually hated Republicans. Nixon's pardon, however, included the caveat that Hoffa would not be allowed to participate in union activities for the next eight years. Hoffa got pissed. So he decided he needed to get his money back from Nixon. Through his contacts with the Cleveland mob, Hoffa got word to Emil Dinzio. The word on the street was that the milk fund and the Hoffa donation were both being hidden in a little bank in a sleepy town called Laguna Niguel. That's got to be bogus, right? The president wouldn't hide dirty money in safe deposit boxes. Well, check out the newspaper stories in 1972 about Nixon's friend B.B. Rebozo. Nixon's pal admitted to Watergate investigators that he had hidden a $100,000 cash contribution to Nixon from Howard Hughes in a safe deposit box in Key Biscayne, Florida. The word on the street was that Nixon had hidden a bunch of his ill-gotten money in a little bank in Laguna Niguel. 
The total they were talking about? $30 million. Emil Dinzio wanted to steal Nixon's millions. We didn't give a shit, Democrat, Republican. We didn't care about nobody except us. We wanted his money. <laughs> we didn't want Nixon. <laughs> the president hadn't put money in a bank account. He hid it in a safe deposit box under someone else's name. Nixon ain't never going to put his name out there on Front Street. And I don't know to this day whose who, who safety deposit box it was. The crew was convinced Nixon couldn't go after them even if he wanted to. What was he going to say? They stole the money I extorted? It was the perfect crime. Or so they thought. Next time on Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. Who are these guys? Meet the team of thieves that flew from Youngstown to Los Angeles. They might have pulled it off without a hitch if they had stuck to the plan. But one of them got another idea. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace. And Phoebe Judge on Criminal. <laughs>